Well, amen. That's good. Well, let's take our Bibles and get ready. <laughs> Got you again. All right, the last few weeks we have noted some alarming trends in our society that should concern every believer. We said and we continue to remind ourselves of that less than half of Americans say they belong to the house of worship today. And that marks the first time since Gallup began collecting data in 1937 that a majority of Americans aren't part of a church, synagogue, or mosque. Religious membership was stable, at least throughout the 20th century, but it fell from 70% in 2000 to 47% in 2020. That's an alarming statistic. <clears throat> it's a real problem. And as we said, we've got a few takeaways from that. We said that there's an obvious lack of interest in the church today then. There are less and less folks attending church than ever before. There's an overall lackadaisical and nonchalant attitude toward church and faith then. And again, these are all symptoms of a greater problem, and that problem is a departure from the mindset of the Lord's day. It wasn't that long ago that our society in general recognized Sunday as the Lord's day. You didn't even have to be a Christian to recognize that. Sundays were sacred, businesses weren't open, and there was no sale of alcohol even. Sadly, again, our culture has continued to become more and more secularized and as a result has a less and less of a concern for the day of the Lord. Stores and shops are open today. Restaurants and food serve all day long. Little League sports schedule games and uh, certain tournaments even throughout the year. And society as a whole views Sunday as simply a day of leisure, recreation, or even just taking care of household projects. Sunday is considered my day off or my time to unwind, my time to get some things done around the house. Sunday's my day. Again, fewer and fewer people accept Sunday as the Lord's day, especially that it ought to be spent worshiping God. And therefore, this year's theme is the Lord's day. And I think it's for good reason. There must be a revival of the Lord's Day or we're going to continue to see growing trends away from God, growing trends away from God's house and ultimately away from godliness in general. Take your Bible, look at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. How, utterly, how important is the Lord's Day? How important is it to recognize God throughout each week? We are seeing trends in our culture away from God, away from the house of God, away from godliness left and right, and it is not a positive trend. Look at what the Bible says in Proverbs 14, 34. <clears throat> we read there, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. If there is a reason why America seems to be traveling down the wrong road, heading in the wrong direction, it is because we have neglected righteousness in our nation. We will no longer be the powerhouse that we were in America as long as we continue in the direction we are going toward evil. Righteousness exalteth the nation. 
If there is one message that Washington needs today, it is not simply to change certain programs and perspectives in one sense. It is to change our direction toward righteousness. Our leaders need to fall on their knees and repent of the sin in their hearts and lives and the sin of the, pro of the certain different uh, policies that they have enacted. We are not going in the right direction. Less and less God, less and less church, less and less remembrance of the Lord's day is not a recipe for exalting a nation. The priority we place on God is word and worship will determine the success of our nation. As we thought about this phrase, the Lord's day, we found ourselves going back to the beginning where the principle was first introduced. In Genesis 1, we read about God creating all things in six days and resting on the seventh day from his work. Realizing that God wasn't tired or wore out or possibly fatigued. No, we realized that creation itself didn't bring him to that place. We learned that the rest itself, the rest that he took after creating all things, was just simply because creation was complete. It had ended his work. And the Bible says that he rested on that seventh day, that he blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified the seventh day. That blessed and sanctified means that he approved of it and that he set it apart as his own and set it apart holy from other days. God made the seventh day holy and set it apart from the other six days. And he intended that the, from the very beginning that there would be a special day dedicated to rest and restoration. God had effectively established a pattern. That pattern would be established in the lives of the Jews as well. After leaving Egypt, God gave Moses and the people the law. We find the law in the Old Testament. And that law included the command in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath day was instituted by God for the nation of Israel, and it commemorated His deliverance for them out of Egypt. Every time they kept the Sabbath day, they were to remember how they were slaves in Egypt and how God delivered them out of bondage. The Sabbath day began on a Friday at sunset and it ended on a Saturday at sunset. It was a day to be complete with only rest. All they could do was rest from all labor. It was symbolic of the Creator's resting on the seventh day. Every time they rested on the Sabbath, they would think about the Creator God and His rest. The Sabbath was a special sign to the Israelites that they had been set apart as followers of the Most High God. Their keeping of that Sabbath day would help distinguish them from nations that were around them. They were unique. They were special. God had utilized this as a covenant and a sign between Him and Israel. Then came Jesus Christ to this old earth. His coming was prophesied. We read over in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 4, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone from his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned from our wicked ways, he says. He's turned us from our wicked ways. 
He laid upon him the iniquity, our iniquity. Jesus Christ bore your sin and he bore mine and it was prophesied way back in Isaiah, 700 years before Christ ever, ever, ever showed up on earth. His coming was prophesied. His coming was in power. We think of the healings and the miracles that Jesus Christ performed while he was here on earth. Attesting to his deity. Attesting to his reality. Helping us to realize that he was more than just a mere man. He was God-man. He was Emmanuel, God with us. And when he arrived, the Old Testament was still in force. Every Jew was required to keep the Sabbath. Every Jew was required to participate in the feast. When Jesus came to earth, the Old Testament law was still in place and it continued to remain in place till Jesus Christ died on Calvary and shed his precious perfect blood. That is when and only when the New Testament went into effect. So as we look at that Old Testament, we are talking about not only those books way back there and what we call the Old Testament, but the Gospels for the first 20 chapters usually of them. And we realize that at that point, the synagogue is a focal point in the, 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 the culture of the people that we're reading about. They met on Friday night at 6, or, or they went from Friday night at 6 to Friday, uh, Saturday night at 6. It was the Sabbath. They were to maintain that rest. They were to reflect on God. They were to allow themselves to remember creation and the fact that God delivered them out of Egypt. And so, the temple was still being used. The veil still separated the holy place from the holy of holies where God resided. Each year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of himself and a sacrifice on behalf of the people. Every year he entered the Holy of Holies. Every year he had to go through the veil to the presence of God and place the blood upon the mercy seat. And for one year, the sin of a nation was covered But it was not forgotten because the next year it would have to be remembered again and forgiven again. That sacrifice was temporary. It could not remove the sin. It could only cover it. The sacrifice of lambs and bullocks could not take away the sin of the world. Only Jesus Christ and his sacrifice could do that. Look, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read verse 4 and then verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> so we have creation and God establishing a pattern. And then he institutes the law and demands and requires Israel, the nation, to keep the Sabbath day, the seventh day, to make it holy. And then Jesus comes. And notice in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, he lets us know that only Jesus Christ and his sacrifice could literally remove sin. 
take it away. Hebrews 10.4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Already, if you believe or have been taught that you must keep the law in order to be saved or forgiven, my friend, right there alone tells us that the law could not save. There wasn't one sacrifice that was made on behalf of the law and the people of God that could save or wash away sin forever. No, it was a temporary covering. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Verse 11. And every, high, every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Man, he steps up to the plate and where every single priest and high priest had to enter in daily and every year on behalf of God, his people, and their own families, Jesus stepped up to the plate one time and offered himself on the sacrifice of humanity, and he died and shed his precious perfect blood. And one time he did what it took a lifetime of them to do. And may I say, they couldn't even complete the job. They couldn't finish the job. But Jesus hung on Calvary and said, it is finished. While on earth, Jesus pointed out that he had come to fulfill that law. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Man, I mean those priests and Sadducees and Pharisees and all of them there, they were all upset thinking Jesus was there to get rid of them and to do away with them and to just completely and totally annihilate their faith and their religion. Not at all. He was there to fulfill the very law that they claimed to keep. Man, he'd have found them a job in the next regime if they'd have only obeyed and followed. But instead, they took him as a threat. He's going to put us out of a job and fulfill the law he did. You know how he did it? By living it in person. He lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death. And he paid a sinner's ransom. The proof of his substitutionary death is seen in the renting of the veil of the temple. Take your Bible, look over at Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 and 51. There are so many pictures of Christ and his work on Calvary throughout the word of God. This one here is, in my mind, so vivid. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 27, verse 50. Verse 51, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, we find him on Calvary. We find him suffering and bleeding and dying on the cross. And when Jesus had cried again with a loud voice, yielding up the ghost, and behold... The veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Over time, they claimed that that old uh, veil had gotten so thick and it was so tall and big. They claim it was words of potentially 60 feet high. But when he took his final breath and he died that day on Calvary, the Bible tells us that that veil was rent from top to bottom. You could have hooked teams of oxen together and never tore that veil in half. 
But the death of Jesus Christ signaled a new beginning. He provided the perfect sacrifice where once mankind could only reach God through the veil and by way of a high priest. Now, he could go to God himself at any time. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. I love that New Testament because I know that God intended it through the apostles' writings and through the, 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 the epistles to write to the church and to give us specific instruction as the church. But friend, let me tell you, we can't toss that Old Testament out either because there's some beautiful pictures. The Bible tells us that the New Testament reveals what the Old Testament concealed. We need them both or God wouldn't have left them both. Hebrews 10, 19, and 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he had consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, his flesh. Do you get what he's talking about? He's saying, listen, I hung there between heaven and earth that day for you. I had a body that was made for me so that I could Pay the penalty for sin. I was all man, but I was all God at the same time. And there I hung between heaven and earth. And when I was rent, when I was torn, when I was crucified, I paid the penalty for your sin and I gave you access to the holiest of places. My body is the veil. And if you'll come through me, you can get to the Father. We now enter into the very presence of God through Christ's broken body and shed blood. He is the veil. And all who believe in Him have total access to the Father. Hey, this signaled the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of a New Testament, a new covenant. That new covenant was grace. And under grace, we're no longer required to keep the law. And we're no longer required to keep the Sabbath. I want us to be careful with this law thing. There is a moral law which is restated in the New Testament with the exception of the Sabbath. People say, we're not supposed to keep the Ten Commandments. We're not under the law. We're under grace. In the book of Romans and a few other places in the New Testament, those nine of ten were restated again because the moral law is still to be kept in our hearts and in our lives. The Sabbath is not renamed or re-mentioned. We are not to meet on Saturdays. We are not required to meet on Saturdays, I should say. You can meet on Saturday if you choose. You can meet on Friday or Thursday or Wednesday or Tuesday or Monday or Sunday. You can meet any day of the week, all days of the week, and that's fine because we're under grace. There's no day that's really better than the next. Because every time we gather together, we're gathering together for the same purpose. To celebrate Jesus Christ and his resurrection. But may I say the Lord's day is something that even the apostles kept. The Lord's day is something that through history we have continued to see 
in action, the Lord Jesus Christ, or should I say God the Creator, who is Christ, placed a pattern in place. A pattern of rest. A pattern of restoration. And although we do not meet on the seventh day, we will find that we are meeting on the eighth day. Because that's how the early church did it. Why in the world would the, uh, the apostles through the book of Acts continue to go to the synagogue? Why? They weren't required to go to the synagogue if they're in Christ Jesus. Why do we see them going then? If they weren't required, why did they go? Well, I'm glad you asked. Before we go further, let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord, you'd bless us in these next couple of minutes. We thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. And Lord, there may be those in our midst who have yet to receive and accept him as Savior. I pray that, Lord, they would do that the very moment, compelled to do so. I'd be fired if they got up out of their seat and came forward and said, I need help right now. Lord, if not, in just a few moments, we're going to open up the altars, and I pray you'd just bring conviction to their heart and help them to recognize that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that he's the veil by which they can reach you, and that they have to go through Jesus in order to get to you, the Heavenly Father. Father, I pray that you'd be with us as believers now. May our hearts be stirred, may we be encouraged, and may we be instructed. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Father, fill me with your spirit and be with your people. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So if they weren't required to, why in the world did they go? Why did they do that? Well, when the Sabbath is mentioned from Acts through Revelation, the occasion is Jewish evangelism. That's what we find. And the setting is normally a synagogue. Where did the Jews meet? A synagogue. They came together to worship. And in a synagogue setting, often they were given opportunities to speak out. There would be a period of time where they would invite someone to come forward and share truths. In this case, sometimes and often, the apostles were there in the synagogue and they would stand and proclaim a truth. And that truth was, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's alive, and he is indeed and was Messiah and is Messiah, and you must trust and receive him. Although you crucified him, he still lives today. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 20, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. He's not saying that he abandoned his Christian faith. He's not saying that he took up unscriptural practices. He's saying that I went to the synagogue. I went ahead and allowed myself to continue to keep certain religious rites so that I could fit in with the Jews so that I could reach them. It was nothing that went against or contrary to the scriptures. I wasn't obligated to keep them, but I was not obligated not to keep them either. I kept certain practices and fulfilled certain things in order so that I could witness effectively to the very ones that I am part of, the Hebrew race. I want to reach my people. He didn't go to bars and drink alcohol. He didn't hang out with sinners and harlots on the corner and do what they did. No, Jesus remained separated, and so did the Apostle Paul. And can I tell you, the Apostles did as well. 
going to the synagogue did not in some way violate a scriptural principle. In this case, it was the place where the Jews met. In this case, it was a place where they could literally share truth in a big way. He didn't go to the synagogue to fellowship with and to edify the saints. He went there to convict and to save the lost. It was there that he and his fellow apostles shared that resurrected Christ. And then they would gather together with fellow believers and rejoice in their newfound hope and life in Christ on the first day of the week. So on that seventh day, they went out witnessing. On that seventh day, Saturday, they went out on a mission to reach the lost. And on the eighth, they gathered together to rest and restore and to fellowship one with another and the Lord himself. Again, it's significant to note that Christ rose again on the first day of the week. Look at Matthew chapter 28, would you please? Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. As they went, notice verse 9 and 10, and as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, all hail, and they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go, that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Notice again the end of the Sabbath. As it began to dawn, what day? The first day of the week. We can look at other passages in Scripture. We can see that when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast the seven devils. The first day of the week. Jesus Christ rose on the first day of the week. Hey, we are not under the law. We don't have to keep the Sabbath. But friend, there's something uniquely special about that first day of the week, and it's the day in which our Savior Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Whenever Christ appears in his resurrection form in the day in, 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 in the day, and if the day is mentioned, it's always the first day of the week. Again, we noted in Matthew 16, we already said, now when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week he appeared. In John chapter 20, verse 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, peace be unto you. Not only do we see him rising on the first day, but we see him wherever the day is mentioned, making himself visible and available on the first day of the week. It would be the first day of the week that Christ's disciples continued to meet. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 7. 
Jesus Christ has resurrected and he is now ascended back to the Father. And the church is moving along now. And notice when they are meeting. You say, they should have met on Saturday. They didn't have time to meet Saturday. They were out witnessing. They had things to do on Saturday to reach the world with the gospel. Now they come together to meet and to fellowship. Acts 27. And upon, not Acts 27, but Acts 20, verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. That's a preacher. You say, well, maybe they started then on Saturday night at 6. Okay. Six hours later, he's preaching still. On Sunday. Crazy, right? That dude's message had to be about 40 pages long. But notice it was upon the first day of the week that the disciples came together. They came together. They met together. They fellowshiped together. They, they learned the word together. They did everything that we're doing now. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Look at this one, would you? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you have a Schofield Bible, they have what's called Usher's Timeline in it. I want you to notice, if you have that, notice at the top of, say, either one, right where the verse is, just look above where that verse is, it'll say A.D. 59. Jesus has been gone now, ascended to heaven, at least almost 30 years or 25 years. And yet, what day are they still meeting? Notice... 1 Corinthians 16, 2, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay upon him in store as God hath prospered him, and there be no gatherings when I come. You say, what's he talking about? Paul's saying, listen, I'm showing up, and you know what I'm, when I'm showing up? On the Lord's day. And when I come, make sure you got your offerings ready to go. He's not talking about the tithes that the people gave. He's talking about those special offerings that were to be set aside for the other saints that were suffering in other areas. He said, but I'm coming to you when I show up. It'll be on the first day of the week because that's when the Christian meets. That's when the believer comes together. That's how the pattern is fulfilled in our dispensation. Goes all the way from Jesus Christ to creation who said, I have worked for six days creating all things and now I rest because it is complete. He says to the Jew, you will acknowledge and recognize that seventh day. It will be a Sabbath to you, a day of rest and restoration. And you will remember it throughout your history. And every time you experience and enjoy the Sabbath rest, you remember being slaves in Egypt and how you had no rest at all until I delivered you. And then he says, by the way, you New Testament believers are no longer under the law. You're under grace because you've gone through the veil, Jesus Christ, and you now have full access to me. 
Remember how it was back in Egypt. Remember how it was while you were in bondage and enslaved to sin. And every time you gather together on the eighth day, the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and you rest and you find restoration, you remember what I've done for you and how you were so burdened and how blessed you are now. The pattern had been set by Christ in creation. Israel would keep the Sabbath, fulfilling the day of rest and restoration. The church today, although not required to keep the Sabbath, is seen in Christ's day all the way through to ours, maintaining a pattern of a day of rest and restoration. Some people would say, well, it wasn't until Constantine showed up that ultimately Sunday became the day that the Christian worshipped. Can I tell you the Christian worshipped on the eighth day because if they were still worshipping on a Saturday, I'll tell you why they were doing it because they were still operating under a Jewish calendar that said that Friday to Saturday night was indeed the Sabbath, but Saturday or Friday night, excuse me, Saturday night to Sunday night was the eighth day, the Lord's day. And so Paul did meet with them, and probably on Saturday night at 6 o'clock, because that was customary in their day, that's what they recognized, and that's how they operated and functioned. The majority of the church early on were Jews, and they preached for six hours at least, until Eutychus fell out of that window to his death. And he broke the service for just a short time as the Apostle Paul went down those steps and went three stories down and said, Hey, hey, you're interrupting my service, boy. Rise! And up he went and he went back up to a seat and he said, You're sitting on the front row or you're standing in the back. I won't have you falling out any more windows. See, the day of the Lord is a day that is set aside for the express purpose of retreating from the daily cares of life. We would call that rest. It's a day to refocus on the Lord. We'd call that reverence. It's a day to return to the altar. We would call that rededication. It's a day reminding ourselves of what is truly important and what God has done. That we would call realignment. We're Christians. We don't have to go to church if we don't want to. We're not under the law. We're under grace. My friend, if that's how you feel, you miss the whole point of the Christian life. We live a life of debt to the Savior. After everything he's done, we owe him big time. He's not asking a whole lot for us to just simply remember him. The Lord's day. I'm a busy man. I'm a busy woman. I've got things to do. The Lord's day. Boy, how's that? How's it working for us in America? We're neglecting the Lord's day. How's it come? How's it turning out? Yeah, but there's a lot of other factors. I'm telling you, the root problem lies right there. We have neglected God. We have done away with Him. We have done a Psalm chapter 2 all over again. May God help us 
to remember the Lord's day. I don't have to do it. I'll still be saved. I don't have to preach the gospel. I'll still be saved. This is going to sound crazy to some of you, and you may not understand what I'm talking about, and if you don't, I'll talk to you later, but I'd go out and get drunk today, and I'll still go to heaven. Because my salvation is not dependent upon what I do. It's dependent on what Christ has already done for me. It's all Christ and Him alone. But why in the world would I want to go out and do that after everything He's done for me? What a blessing it is to gather on the Lord's day, even as the early church did and God's people have throughout the centuries, recognizing the day that Christ resurrected every day we celebrate Easter here on Sundays and so much more. And we might note some of those things in the weeks to come. May God help us to never forget the Savior and to always remember Him on the Lord's day. Father, we come to you. We ask, dear God, that you'd speak to our hearts today. We thank you for all you've done. And Lord, we're just a needy people today, no doubt about it. Thank you again for how you have provided us the, 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 the means by which to enter into the very presence of God. That, Lord, we are no longer uh, dependent upon the high priest to go on our behalf once a year. We can come to you anytime if we have indeed put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who is the veil. We can go through him to get to you every day, every moment of every day. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. You washed it away. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege it is to worship you and to gather together as God's people on the Lord's day, your day, a day that you've set apart in that sense by pattern. We see it in creation. We see it with the Sabbath. Now we see it in the New Testament church on the eighth day or the first day of the week. Thank you so much. And Lord, today there may be those that are without Christ. I pray that they would be convicted of sin and that they'd see a need to receive and accept Jesus Christ. And for the believer, may we make commitment, a commitment to observe you, to recognize you, to rest to be restored each week, to realign ourselves all over again as we reverence ourselves to you, before you, as we acknowledge you and elevate you, exalt you. Help us, Lord, to step back from life and take a moment every week to truly reflect on you and your wonderful goodness in our life. You saved us out of bondage, and we are free indeed today. Thank you. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.